You're listening to an IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education. Powered by UCL Minds. This is Research for the Real World. Conversations with researchers about the paths they've taken to shape our everyday lives. This is Research for the Real World. I'm Sam Sims. I'm a lecturer at the UCL Institute of Education. And on today's episode, I'm talking to Carrie Jewett, Professor of Learning and Technology. Carrie's work is focused on digitally mediated interaction and communication, touch, and she's also interested in interdisciplinary research. Carrie works at UCL Knowledge Lab, of which she was director between 2016 and 2018. And Carrie is also the founding director of the journals Visual Communication and Multimodality in Society, as well as being on the editorial board of the British Journal of Educational Technology, amongst other journals. Today, we're going to be discussing how we communicate through touch, as well as in other ways, and whether and how this can be done remotely, as well as what we can learn as researchers through collaborating across disciplinary boundaries. Carrie, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me on the podcast. Carrie, before joining the IOE, I think you worked in healthcare settings, researching how GPs and patients, as well as other healthcare professionals, communicate with one another. Tell us about what you learned in that research and how you got from studying healthcare to studying education. Yeah, it was it was quite a journey. And so I was working in healthcare in the moment of the AIDS pandemic, HIV and AIDS pandemic in the UK. And a really big issue was that people couldn't, professionals and the general public suddenly had to talk about this really difficult taboo subject of sex and sexual relations. And that's a difficult thing to do. And when someone's, you know, health and well-being really relies on it, it becomes a very high stakes conversation. So my research was trying to understand how those conversations happen and how they could be improved and what kind of resources um, general practitioners and other healthcare workers needed to uh, in, enable them to have those difficult conversations. So it was all about communication, really. And I was doing lots of observations of these consultations in healthcare settings, in GP practices, and in uh, sexually transmitted infection clinics and various other spaces. And what I realised was that so much of what was going on, because it was so hard to talk about, was happening not through what people were saying, but the the kind of gaps between what they were saying and a very non-verbal way of communicating about these taboo issues. And I became fascinated with that aspect of communication. That took me to go and do a master's in social research theory and methods And I started to specialise in non-verbal communication or what we would now call multimodal communication. And that brought me to the IOE to work with a very dear colleague, Gunter Kress, 
who sadly passed away. And we started to work together around trying to find methods for mapping and researching this complex aspect of communication. That's fascinating, Carrie. And some of these issues have recently been back in the public eye due to the Russell T Davies TV show, It's a Sin, which did a really good job, I think, of illustrating some of those difficulties around communication of these sort of taboo subjects uh, to do with HIV AIDS between medics and patients and families as well, actually. So what did you observe and what did you learn about the importance of nonverbal communications? In what ways was it being used? I suppose what I learned is that we need to pay attention to it and that when language fails us, which it does for all of us in so many different moments in life, that we need to not see that as silence as such, but we need to understand what other forms of communication come into that gap. So I think if we take It's a Sin as an example, we can see these moments where, say, like when the one of the characters is coming out to his parents, everybody knows there's this massive silence. Everybody knows something's not being said. And we can either take the ambiguity of those moments and open them up, or we can take the ambiguity of those moments and just ignore it and let that silence persist. So I think those ambiguous moments of communication really offer an opportunity to explore what one another have to say. And by honing in on the ways of people's facial expressions, the ways that maybe people stop looking at one another, their bodily posture and movement, you know, we, we're picking up on so much in those ways. So when it's a sin, you know, we're being, the, you know, cause quite a few of the characters are being silently told to shut up and they're responding to that. So I think it's about trying to take seriously these other ways of communicating. You've obviously moved into the field of education where you study similar ideas around uh, communication and non-verbal communication in particular. And I think you're one of your current research projects is focused on touch and the importance of touching communicating. And this has been in the news this week, obviously, because the week we're recording this is the week that, uh, you know, two households are allowed to meet outside for the first time in months. And there have been stories, you know, on, in the news of grandparents who have now been fully vaccinated, who are able to hug their grandchildren for the first time and what that meant to them. What exactly do we mean by touch and why is it so important to us? Well, it's great that touch has come into everybody's awareness a bit more. It's it, Obviously, it's awful that it's come to our awareness through this, uh, in this tragic, very difficult and strange moment. But touch has always been vital. And although it's in my research now, it's always been a part of looking at this multimodal landscape of learning and communicating and interacting. So in terms of why it's important, when we're born, I mean, just to become human requires being touched, like the the ways in which people are born into the world, the ways in which we're nurtured and cared for. Without touch, we would quite literally not thrive and, and not survive. So it's incredibly base, the kind of importance of touch. But it's also, in terms of the research that's done around touch, it's been research that shows the kinds of information we glean from our world through touch, the ways in which we form bonds, not just with other people or really intense relationships, but in retail, for example. 
if someone goes into a shop, which obviously none of us have done for a long time, but if we go into a place and where we, we touch an object, we're much more likely to buy it. So if you go into like a furniture store or something, you'll notice that shop assistants will start trying to get you to engage physically with the furniture in the shop. I mean, and it's around building bonds between ourselves and objects as well. But also in a, like say, healthcare setting that we we're talking about just now, or even in an educational setting where touch actually is quite different, I suppose has, has a different set of constraints around it. But in a healthcare setting, if somebody, if a doctor giving information or a nurse were to touch the person they're speaking to, they're more likely to comply with that information. So it, it has very kind of subtle ways of influencing our decision-making, our thinking and our relationships with one another. And I think education is a very interesting space to think about touch because with all the concerns about abusive touch, quite rightly concerned around abusive touch, also a story that's in the headlines this week, that there's become touch has become a very regulated space in educational settings. And one thing that can happen in response to that is touch is just entirely removed because it's so problematic. And that brings us back to this question of ambiguity and around how we manage touch, the complexity of touch. I don't think removing all touch from educational settings, say between teacher and very young children in the kindergarten is necessarily the most productive thing to do, but it requires a conversation about limits and boundaries and comfort and cultural difference so it, and gender, and it's a very complex space to operate in. Fascinating. So this week, the opening up of the UK lockdown restrictions, in which we can kind of go out and meet people again, I think is a really momentous moment for everybody. And it's interesting because also we're still being advised to be guarded against who who we touch and, and how we touch. So it's still got a restriction around this uh, character of how touch can come in. We've been doing one of our case studies is about newspaper stories about COVID-19. And what we've been looking at is how the way that touch has been talked about and how technology has been talked about in the moment of COVID-19. So we've been looking at changes in the lead up to the pandemic and the last year of the pandemic. And that's shown that touch is really, there's been an explosion of headlines around touch in the news and in the newspapers, partly around fear and hygiene and control, but also really understanding the importance of touch for everybody the lack of touch and exploring the different ways in which people have tried to compensate for touch. So we've had a lot of headlines about virtual hugging. You, you mentioned grandparents and the kind of risk of hugging a grandchild. And people are just endlessly inventive, the ways in which people have found ways to feel a sense of hugging, a feel a sense of connection. That takes me to this the view of touch that we have. We said, what is touch? You know, we've said why it's important and we've said that it can change as well in this moment. In our project, in my research, we move beyond a sense of touch just as a direct physical contact to encompass a much wider range of sensorial and social aspects of touch. So for example, instead of just thinking of touch as like touching one another with our 
kind of, you know, with patting someone or a hat stroke or something, then we think, well, there's also your bodily awareness, how close you feel to somebody, the position of the body in relation to another. That's a form of touch as well. But also thinking about the environment, how the wind touches our skin, how the cold feels, something we've all experienced through uh, social distancing throughout the UK winter. And thinking about notions of remote touch, touch norms and practices, and also touch metaphors, which I think a lot of people have been using in this online communicative environment. So we're taking this very broad view of touch to understand how the situation of COVID is stretching what touch is and how digital technologies support that rethinking of touch. That's fascinating, Carrie. And yeah, as you, as you touched on there, another result of the pandemic is that many of us have got used to seeing and hearing our friends and colleagues and family virtually, you know, mediated by a screen through Zoom or Teams or FaceTime. But I think you are also researching how we might be able to experience touch virtually as well. And that's quite a sort of mind-bending thing to uh, kind of get your head around. So can you tell us more about that and perhaps give us some examples of how, how it might be possible to touch remotely? Okay, so there's quite a few devices on the market now around enabling remote touch so there's some wearable devices like there's a a bracelet that you can buy where two people have their bracelets are paired and they're wirelessly connected to their phone but basically so you can send a, a squeeze you can send a series of squeezes to somebody in the through these devices and what the, the people who made this device were trying to do was, I suppose, say, when we're often on having a, a remote conversation or, or want to kind of feel connected with, a, with another person, actually, we might not have anything to say. We just want to be with them. We just want to have that sense of presence. So this very small squeeze, if you like, is just a way of saying, I'm there, I'm with you. You don't have to have something information content and I suppose that's what a lot of these touch technologies are doing they're recognizing that communication isn't just about saying a whole heap of words about a particular event that happened and especially especially useful when I don't know about you but I've often found myself on a zoom call with a close friend and I'm like well nothing's happened I've actually got no information content for this call (laughs) what have you been up to yeah we we just want to be with each other but you know that might normally happen by going for a walk or you know these moments where you're not having to speak non-stop and so zoom and all of these other online platforms become very transactional they're very much very much about and what i mean by transactional is i give you something you give me something back they become about information and business and so much of touch isn't about information and business so much of feeling connected isn't about information and business so these digital technologies are very much filling that gap so there's another one that I particularly like which um, is a prototype which means they're very early a lot of these technologies are very early ideas that aren't yet in our everyday lives they're they're living in labs at the moment and they're being explored and so another one is a little device that is connected to your laptop and to your friend's laptop and it's got a little creature on it and you can 
pet that little creature and the little creature at the other person's laptop will react to that to, to the touch that you've given it so it's a sense of sending something quite ephemeral quite open and quite ambiguous in our research project in touch we designed with the help of colleagues from ucl informatics and computing we designed what we call tactile emoticon it looks a bit like a rather unglamorous oven mitt and you put, can put your hand into it and another person has the same device and you can send through this technology, you can send them heat, pressure, vibration. So these three different forms of touch, if you like. And we explored how people, we got together pairs of good friends, family members, and people in, in romantic relationships, and we got them to send each other touch messages related to emotions like feeling sad or feeling lonely, feeling really excited and happy. And we were really interested to see that, and other research has shown that people are incredibly good at reading touch messages, even without any words around that. So they picked up the emotional content of these touches, even when they were sent remotely and they couldn't see one another because they were in separate rooms. And started, they started to build quite complex messages, um, drawing on their knowledge of the, of the person involved, knowing what kind of things they liked. So maybe they would say, well, when they're upset, they just want to be warm. Oh, when, when, they're, when they're upset, they don't want to be touched at all. So I'm not going to send them anything. That's a fascinating sort of experimental setup. And I'm interested in, as well as uh, whether the participants were able to kind of decode the, the messages or the feelings being sent through the device, what was their reaction like to just taking part in that? Did they enjoy it? Did they find it interesting? The participants varied in their, in their responses to this strange device. And we went through a process of designing it with them. So we had a, an early prototype where we used quite different kinds of materials. We were using silicon. And yeah, it was funny to watch people using it because it's this glove, like an encased space. And they would be really hesitant about putting their hand into this space because they couldn't see what was going to happen. So there was this kind of moment of fear. All right. And yeah. there were some moments of absolute repulsion because after you'd used it for a while, the silicon got quite kind of hot and sweaty inside the, the glove. So we had to change the materials because they were really too clammy. And they started to feel like a quite unpleasant hand for some of the people. Okay. So we learned a lot from people's reactions to this strange device. But quite a few people were like, I could imagine using something like this. I think we, it, this was pre-pandemic, this particular study. And I think uh, it's the kind of thing that people, if we, did, if we were able to do it now, I think people would really see a different kind of possibility for that device than they could have imagined at that time, where really what they were saying was kind of, why would I want to do this when I can just go and hug my, my partner, even if, you know, just wait till the evening. It's just silly. So, let, yeah, I think the context is everything, as always. 
yeah, it's not hard to think of applications of this, or at least, you know, the, the scope for trialing something like this in care homes that have been, you know, mm. completely locked down. Yeah, the, the pandemic suggests all sorts of new uses and applications and use cases for this sort of technology. So interesting. Thank you. Carrie, I know that in a lot of your work, and indeed uh, the example of the gloves you were just mentioning there, you've worked with artists, designers, engineers, I think even dancers, uh, to try and understand touch and its importance. Tell me, how did that work and what kind of insights do you get from working with people across such a broad range of areas? The project started to work with artists in order to open up new questions. And partly we needed to do that because people find it really hard to think and talk about touch. We haven't got a very good language or vocabulary for talking about touch. And so most lay people, there's some specialists who are very good at talking about touch, but most lay people, members of the public, find it really difficult to even articulate what's happened or, or to be able to recall a touch in any great detail. And while we were working with artists, like we did a performance called Thresholds of Touch, where I worked with a sound artist and a digital performance artist to create a, a one-hour performance, all focused around the experience of touch. And the idea was that it attuned people to touch. And what I mean by that is it made people acutely aware of their skin, their interaction with others, and the kind of sensations that that gives. And through the performance, it opened up this really imaginative, exploratory, slightly risky space for people to get in touch with touch, if you like. So it started, it's, just, it's, it's fascinating to think about now because this was in January, 2020. So it was just before COVID hit the UK. And it would be an impossible thing to do now. It would be an irresponsible and unethical thing to do now. But the performance then, we started with a ritualistic washing of every participant's hands, which I was a part of doing. And through that washing of hands, people started to tell stories and talk about their, you know, how they'd learned to wash their hands, stories of always being told off for being dirty or getting too mucky, Sto stories about teachers, like washing their hands when they were in kindergarten. So it was, and quite different cultural stories because there was a very international audience. And then people were invited to uh, shake hands with one another, to explore each other's pulses. And the, the artistic experience like that gave permission for people to do touching in a different kind of way and a safe space to do that in as well. And it was a bit somewhat one of the participants described it as an incredibly tense, intense experience where they kind of suddenly kind of felt like they were through the performance going into this tunnel where they were kind of really embedded in thinking about touch. And after that performance, which took people to really think about touch and that the artist described it as a, did a touch preparation chamber and she described it 
use the analogy of how astronauts are trained to go into space through going into a zero gravity chamber. She said, we're creating a tactile preparation chamber. So after that hour, we then did a, a workshop where we got people to process the experience they'd had around touch and to explore that experience and what touch meant to them and the kinds of social norms and practices that they were embedded in. So working with an artist created a new kind of research environment for us to explore. It gave people a new set of resources and a new set of experiences that they could really think with in a very deep and rich way. One of our case studies in the In Touch project is called Designing Digital Touch. We, through our contacts, we set up a design module with colleagues at Loughborough Design, design School. And we ran a whole module on focusing in on designing digital touch for a user experience module. And what we found after the module, which included rapid prototyping, which is just a basically a way of making concrete ideas. So you've got an idea for a digital device, mock it up with some cardboard and some, some air clay, that kind of stuff. And what, when we saw what people had done, we realised how very difficult even designers found it in thinking about touch. And so we started to develop with the lecturers that we'd worked with at Loughborough Design School to develop a toolkit to kind of intervene in that thinking process and to give people, young novice designers, ways of thinking about the social and the sensory aspects of touch so things like setting them tasks to go and, you know, go now, find three objects that are nearby, describe their texture, feel them, make an inventory of the kinds of dimensions that are important to you, that kind of thing. So it had activities in it, some kind of questions and prompts to think about touch experiences, thinking about relationship between touch and memory, touch and context and the kind of physical properties of touch as well. And we, through working with our design colleagues, we were able to take that, an early version of the toolkit, try it out with a different cohort of students and redevelop the toolkit. And now um, we're about to launch it as a digital toolkit for designers. So that's, you know, we never went into that case study thinking that we would make a toolkit. So I think one of the exciting things about working with designers and artists is you always go in pretty open and you're never quite sure where you're going to end up. And that's very exciting and useful space to be in. That's a great example of, yeah, true interdisciplinary collaboration. I think, you know, you've learned from the designers and artists and in some sense um, through the toolkit, they've also learned from you. And I know, Carrie, you're interested in interdisciplinary research more broadly. Um, and th this is a sort of, um, you know, when I'm talking to leaders in higher education or when I'm reading briefs from uh, research councils, you know, you always see this word interdisciplinary. It's a popular thing. But at the same time, you know, as we all know, disciplines provide distinctive and useful ways of looking at the world. You know, biologists have powerful ways of studying the living world. Uh, economists have very different but powerful ways of studying strategic human interactions and markets. So, so what is 
is it that we gain? You know, if you were trying to persuade somebody of the value of interdisciplinary research, what would you point to? So interdisciplinary work enables us to bring lots of different ways of looking at the same phenomena. So yesterday, um, me and my team did a, in, a workshop with a German research lab, who's one of our case studies, around interactive skin. So interactive skin is basically a, a whole variety of new technologies that really sit across the skin. They're ultra thin technologies that and they're really the cutting one of the cutting edges of touch technology and working together we did a what we call a speculative workshop and what that means is this very new technology has an amazing future but we don't know what it is so we're going to speculate around that so we imagined this, this might sound unusual, we imagined we were 50 years ahead in the future and it was 2071. And then we worked backwards from 2071 to 2021 to say, how would we have got to the place in the future where this technology is as ubiquitous and possibly mundane as, an eye, as, a, tel- as a mobile phone? And what we did was we took two starting couple of starting points to do that, but the two main ones were technology and the other one was the social practices. And what we did there was we mapped this future as an idea with lots of different pathways and good things and bad things that might happen along the way. And we were responding to the social and the technology all the way through this dialogue of the future. And at the end, what the computer science colleagues said was that it would really help them think differently about what they were building and designing, but also their focus on technology and materials, because materials are such an important part of of what touch will be, had really helped us think about things like regulation, the um, sustainability what's the what contact might be the kind of scenarios social between us we built social scenarios of where that technology might land in relation to touch without them we wouldn't have been able to do that and without us they wouldn't have been able to think about the social in the same way so i see these interdisciplinary research as a collaborative dialogue across difference and sometimes why it's very can be very hard to do is there's real tensions between the different disciplines in that conversation. And a bit like coming back to the ambiguities that we're talking about in all conversations, those spaces are really interesting because it's there, these tensions that if we explore them, we can often find, you know, like a, a key challenge or a key opportunity for thinking about a technology so it really interdisciplinarity is about shining different disciplinary lens on a phenomena that's always useful do you have any advice for other researchers perhaps early career researchers you know just things that they should keep in mind if they want to make this kind of research work so i'm lucky enough to be the chair of the ucl collaborative social science domain which 
is the domains at UCL sit across all of the faculties. They're meant to kind of operate higher level than the faculty level and bring together researchers from from across UCL to to collaborate on, on various topics. And we're also lucky enough to have a really active early career network attached to the domain and a new PhD group attached to the domain. So they've got lots of ideas themselves about how what was helpful. And one thing that they would really like is more opportunities to discipline hop and spend time in these other spaces. I guess that would be one of my key tips, I suppose, would be to spend time in the other discipline, spend time observing how people work in a, in a respectful way, and to manage the chaos of trying to see another discipline through your own lens. So it can also shine back, reflect back some really interesting ideas about or views on your on our own discipline, which could be useful to think about. But it's a bit of a cliche, but it does all come down to finding ways to have a respectful dialogue across difference. But also, I think it's not about merging. So it's not about me. When I work with an artist, I work very hard to not suddenly think, oh, my God, I'm so arty and I'm an artist too. You know, like I always hold on to, which I do see quite a lot in this collaborative work. You see some some dreadful pieces of work created by social scientists who suddenly think they're an artist. And, you know, so... So I think for me, it's about understanding where I'm located in that space, taking up the offer to move across the boundary. So in the work, some of the work with the artists that I'm doing, I have become a performer assistant. I've become a kind of giver of ideas to scripts and such like. So there's movement across these boundaries. And at times you have to let them be fluid and you have to open up to the uncertainty of someone else's process. So I think it's about the top tip is listening, not shying away from the very difficult conversations, which is really hard because we're not always well equipped to have difficult conversations. But it's about finding points of difference and points of connection and then working with both of those things, not going for the merging avoiding merging and yeah that would probably be my my tips that's really useful carrie jewett it's been so interesting talking to you today thanks for coming on the podcast thanks it's been great talking to you and uh, to have the opportunity to share our work with everybody cheers you can find out more about carrie's research by following in underscore touch underscore ucl on twitter or searching for ucl knowledge lab if you have questions or topics you would like us to address in future interviews Follow the links in the show notes where you can record your questions using either voice or text. If you enjoyed listening to the podcast today, there are now nine seasons of conversations with IOE researchers, all available from wherever you get your podcasts. And as an added bonus, you can find the Research for the Real World playlist featuring tracks contributed by previous guests and producers. Follow the links in the show notes to Spotify. I'm Sam Sims, and this has been Research for the Real World. Goodbye. 
Search for the Real World is brought to you by the IOE Marketing and Communications team. In association with IOE Research Development. This podcast is presented by me, Dr. Kerry Wong. And me, Dr. Sam Sims. The theme music was created by Rob Cochran. Tatiana Sotero-Diaz is the series advisor. Amy Leibowitz is the series producer. And Jason Illigan is the executive producer of the IOE podcast. Thanks so much for downloading and listening to this IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education, University College London. 